Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church and Pastor Josh LaGrange. This week, Pastor Josh continues his series in the book of Romans. In this sermon, we are shown that as believers, we are counted as alive with Christ, enabling us to live a new kind of life. You can join us by turning in your Bibles to Romans chapter 6 as Pastor Josh delivers his message titled, Alive in Union with Christ. I'd like to follow along with us as we read and study through the scripture, Romans chapter 6. Give you a moment to turn there. Uh, We're going to read the first 11 verses together. Romans 6, verses 1 through 11. We've uh, noted five main points in this entire chapter. I'm going to review those here in just a little bit. Um, And we're ready today for the second one in this passage. So Romans 6, let's read verses 1 through 11, and then we'll ask God's help and pray together uh, after that. So beginning in verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? It may never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we pray that you will come and give us eyes to see, ears to hear. Um, Father, I, I pray that you'll give us understanding Lord, this passage does have complex and and tedious truths here. I pray that you give us grace to be able to see, able to understand, and then, Father, for it to go deeper than this. Lord, your, your word shatters the hardened hearts. It separates the soul and spirit, dividing, splitting us all the way to the core, changing us, molding us, awakening us, working these miracles that we could never accomplish on our own. And so, Father, we pray, we ask that you would do this this morning. Father, I pray that not one of us in this room would be unaffected by your word. Father, I pray that not one of us in this room would be stubborn towards you, would have a a stiff neck, hard heart towards you, O God. But Lord, give us humility. Bring us to bow before you. Bring us to see your truth and in seeing your truth, comprehend your ways, comprehend your greatness, your glory more as you show us how it is you've saved souls from hell, how it is you've brought change and given eternal life. So please, Father, help us in this. So every person in this room, Father, I pray for those that have turned to Christ, are currently following after you and right with you. Please, God, give strength to 
grow us, build us up, that we come to a, a, a higher place in our walk with you. But any who is resisting you, any that has not yet turned to Christ, Father, we pray that this would be the time where they're stricken. Lord, that you send your spirit to draw. So whatever is needed in every solo, God, please bring it. We pray you will be pleased as you bring change. And Lord, the work I need to do to teach it clearly and not stumble over words and things, help me to be clear and, and faithful to your text. Please bless this time. Lord, we ask all these things through the name of your son. Amen. Um, by May of 1945, World War II was drawing near to its uh, official end. Um, so some of the Axis powers had already surrendered, and on May 8th of 1945, Germany officially surrendered. But things being official do not necessarily mean that everything went the way that it was supposed to. It doesn't mean that all the German troops complied or that all of the prisoners were actually liberated. Um, there were scattered German troops who continued resistance even into 1946, and the last concentration camp to be liberated didn't happen until May 9th of 1945. So what that, that means is there was at least a brief period of time when according to the rule of law, legally, every prisoner of war who had been taken, every human that they had taken captive was legally free, but some of them not actually free. So officially, a law had passed, it had been declared a freedom, but had not actually been liberated out of the bonds. Some were still being held captive. And we can take that as a bit of an illustration for some of what we've been seeing. The book of Romans teach us about what God has done in this um, work that, that the Bible calls justification. Uh, justification being that work uh, where we are pardoned by God. We are forgiven of our sins by turning to Christ in faith. And so when we talk about that you can be forgiven of your sins if you will turn away from your rebellion and trust in Christ, that the moment of faith, this instant, that's the critical moment where you can be made right with God. Another way of saying that, another way of saying you can be forgiven, made right with God, is to be justified, pardoned, declared not guilty by God. That's the legal term that the Bible sometimes uses to describe that. And the book of Romans is, is the place in scripture that goes the deepest in explaining, here's what this is, okay? Justification and then the things that come after that, here's how it happened, okay? So we can ask the question, how is it right, how is it okay for God to look on lawbreakers like us and to say, I pardon you, but if a, a judge on earth did that, that's a wicked thing. So how is it okay? Well, we've been seeing what it is that God has done. Back in chapter three of this book, by the way, this is laid out kind of start to finish, walking us through what God has done. But we saw back in chapter three that it was explained that because Christ came as our substitute, that he died in the place of all of those who would come to him. This is how God can be just and at the same time justify or pardon criminals, lawbreakers who have broken God's law. And as we've continued to go through, what keeps happening is 
we're showing more of the depths of here's what Christ actually accomplished in all these things. And then we come to chapter six and here's what's happening in chapter six. Chapter six is all about, okay, so you who have turned to Christ, you've been forgiven of your sins. You've been promised eternal life. It's yours. Now here's how that brings practical change to your everyday life. Here's how what Christ has done to save your soul. Here's how that brings us for the rest of the time we have on this earth to bring growth in obedience, to bring growth in becoming more holy. Every Christian who has been justified, every truly justified Christian will then have the work of God take place where transformation, change, renewal is taking place in their lives. And that process, that's what the Bible calls sanctification. So you've got justification and then this process of sanctification, God growing us. So chapter six has been showing, here's how this affects this. And as you read it for the first time, this is, this is one of those places in the Bible that the first time you read it, it sounds strange. So for instance, last week, we saw the Bible say that for you who are attached to Christ by faith, you have died with Christ. You have been crucified with Christ. Well, what in the world does that mean? What, what does it mean? How have I been crucified with Christ? Well, we went on to see that one of the parts of that is that it has happened legally. This is how God counts it. This is our position before him. It's technically, it's officially, we have died to sin with Christ. We've been crucified with him. God counts it so um, in our position. And so a great deal of what we've studied so far is to say this, you've been joined with Christ. His death was counted as yours death. It is like God counts it so for you who've trusted him that when Jesus went to the tomb, it's like you took your old unconverted living for myself, living in rebellion self, brought it into the tomb. And then when Jesus rose, it's like you and I rose to new life. And so part of what we're seeing here is this is officially, technically, legally. But the text doesn't stop there. It takes us further in this and shows us that there's more that's happening in our union with Christ. When it says that you have died with Christ, part of that is legally, but what we're shown also is that there is an actual way that change is coming, that there is a death that is taking place. And that when Christ raised and it's we're counted that we've raised with him, yes, part of that is legally, but there is an actual way in everyday life that Christ's life is affecting our life. So there is both legal and practical changes that Christ brings. There's a technical situation. And then there's also ways that God is actively at work in his people bringing change. So to kind of catch us up to speed, just a little bit here with what the outline of the whole chapter is. Let's just be honest. Okay. This is tedious. Okay, there's some parts of the Bible that are just tedious. Last Sunday, we kind of did this whole outline over the whole thing. I know it was a, a lot and a lot with outline. It's tedious. That's just, this is just what it takes sometimes. Okay, if you're going to know God, going to follow Christ, we got to know the word. We can't skip the hard stuff. Some of this is tedious. But what's happening in chapter six 
is that the question is asked, all right? If I have turned to Christ and I'm confident that I have forgiveness of sins, all my sins, does that mean that I can just keep sinning? If God shows grace, then does that mean I can just do whatever I want and still say, hey, but I have heaven at the end? And what the scripture says is no. The truly justified Christian cannot live a pattern of willful, deliberate sin. And here's why. Chapter six gives five reasons why. And what it does is describe, here are five things that God has done and here's how they affect your everyday life. So last Sunday we saw, here's what's happened. Here's a reality. Even if you didn't know it, you who have turned to Christ, you have died with Christ. What does that mean? That's what the sermon was last Sunday. Today we're going to see the point in number two, that not only have you died with Christ, but you are now alive in union with him. What does that mean? Well, that's what we're going to consider this morning. So we're ready for, if you're keeping notes in in the outline here, ready for number two, you cannot live in willful sin because we are now alive in union with Christ. So look back, if you will, at the section uh, from last week, verses one through seven, as well as um, the main section we're looking at today, which is verses eight through 11. If you look back as we were studying that part that talked about uh, you've died with Christ, there's even some parts back there that mentions, that hints at what we're talking about today. If you look at verse four, it shows that just as we have died with Christ, we have also raised with him. And And then look at that last phrase there so that now we will walk in newness of life. Walk in newness of life. That's a really helpful phrase uh, to get in our heads. In verse five, it says, if we've become united with Christ in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. And then look at verses one, or excuse me, eight through 11 again. Let's read them again and specifically look for the part about how Jesus's resurrection affects us. So verse eight, now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ having been raised from the dead is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him for the death that he died. He died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so consider yourselves to be dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus. So what is the point that we are seeing here? You have died with Christ and you are alive with him. So what truths are we supposed to draw out of that? Let me, let me tell you three things that I, I think um, are meant here and that are spoken of. The first is what we've already covered legally. Legally, you are counted as alive. You are counted in union with Christ. We've already talked about that. But here's the second one. You notice that the text is showing that your future life, your future resurrection is certain because of Christ's resurrection. If you look at the language of verse eight, when it says, because Christ is alive, because Christ is raised from the dead, we shall also live with him. This is speaking of a time in the future. So all who are in Christ you have responded to the gospel, you have turned to Christ, you have been made spiritually alive now, physically alive and spiritually alive, alive in relationship to God. And there is coming a day when there will be the future resurrection. 
all of those who refuse to bow the knee, all of those who refuse Christ. What scripture says is, this is Jesus's words. You can look at places like John 3. This is, this is the theme that comes up over and over again. Those who refuse Christ, physically alive, but spiritually dead, meaning they are cut off from that which is, Jesus talks about that which is life indeed. There is no eternal life. Um, if you want to look at one passage there, Ephesians chapter two for a moment, or well-known passage there talks about, and you were, so speaking to you who have turned to Christ, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. What this means is spiritually, in your relationship to God, there is such a thing as spiritual death. I mean, this is why when Jesus, when Jesus said in John 3, that unless one is born again, he will not see the kingdom of heaven. Over and over again, this language of crossing from death into life is spoken of. of this is the conversion that must take place. That when you come to understand your need of Christ, that he is the answer, and you respond in faith, at that moment, there is the awakening, the conversion, the new birth. The Bible uses a lot of language to describe that. In John 5, the language he uses is, if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you will pass from death to life, entering this life relationship with him, and then the promise of life to come. So all of that is referenced here. I don't believe that's the main thrust that is here. There will be some more on that to come in some of the chapters. So you are legally alive in Christ. You are spiritually in connection with God, alive in the promise of a future resurrection when Christ returns. But here's the third one, and it's the one that I believe is the main point of the text. There is a real way that Jesus's living presence is in you. And by him being in you, his presence, his power being in you, it is bringing about a new kind of life. That you're made into a new creature. That old ways of behaving, old ways of living are dying and a new way of obeying is coming about. Something happens in regard to our sin, and this is referring to even right now. So for instance, uh, to see one more verse, if you look over to Romans 7, uh, verse 6 for a second, in the next chapter that we'll come to, it's still kind of in some of this theme. It says, but now we have been released from the law, meaning we're no longer under that law of Moses, having died to that by which we were bound, okay, so that we serve in newness of the Spirit, and not in oldness of the letter. There's a new way that we obey God. There's a new ability that was not there in the past. And all of this is speaking of right now. So here's part of the point. Jesus not only legally will save you from your sins, he not only technically frees you from the bondage, there's also a practical way that he is at work in the Christian liberating us from sin and then the promise that one day it'll be finished. The promise that one day when we pass into glory, we will be glorified. The sin nature, that poison, that power completely removed. But right now, we're in the process of living 
a new kind of life. And that really is the thrust of Romans 6 here. So here's how your justification affects your sanctification. Christ is alive. He's alive in you. And he is bringing about a new way of living. Old things past, new ways that are coming. So what this means is that Christ's presence and Christ's power is producing a power and ability in us to overcome sin. Now, now when we say this, that Christ is in you, his, his presence is in you, um, here, here's what we don't mean by that. Have you ever been to a, one of those funerals? And I don't want to be overly critical, but have you ever been there and somebody mentions something about, you know, Uncle Bob will live on in our hearts? Yeah, you know, regardless of what you think about that kind of language, I think it's kind of unhelpful because it's diverting away from the reality of Scripture. But what they're getting at is this. As you remember Uncle Bob in the years to come, you're sort of keeping his memory around. Well, I, I want to make sure that we understand when the Bible says that Christ is in you, that's not what is meant. It, it, it's not some kind of inspirational way. Like we remember Jesus and that excites us. And by being excited, we go on to obey him more. Well, I hope that happens, but that's not what Romans 6 is about. It's not some weird kind of way. What it is teaching is this. There is a real there is an actual way that God comes to dwell in his people. In the book of John, Jesus says that all who receive Christ, the Father and the Son will come and we will make our abode in him. The whole New Testament teaches that when you turn to Christ, all part of that conversion, the Holy Spirit comes to live within you. You become a temple of the Holy Spirit. God is living within you. You are attached to Christ. Christ is in you. You are in union. He is dwelling inside of you. Um, let me show you one other place that that point is made. If you flip over to the book of Galatians for a second, Galatians 2, if you find verse 19 there, similar kind of language and a similar kind of point is being made here. In Galatians 2, if you find verse 19, it says this, for through the law, law capital L, that law of the Old Testament, that law of Moses, that law of great regulations and the idea that I earn my stance with God. Through the law, I died to the law. He, he had just explained there and just getting to explain more the fact that Jesus, in accordance with the law, he took on the curse of the law on himself in order to deliver us out of that and bring us into something new. All of that will be some of next week. But look what he says, through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. That's some of the exact language that's in Romans 6. Look what he says next. I have been crucified with Christ. That's language of Romans 6. But then look at this next part. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. What is being emphasized here is that in union with Christ, part of what's happening is that Christ comes to live inside his people and his power is producing change. His power is bringing about an ability to obey God, an ability to live to God. I, I like that language. I think that's very helpful there in verse 10, is it? Christ lives to God, lives to the Father, even so you. Here's what we're called. Live unto God. What should life look like? Live unto God. Make our life, make this the point, live unto Him. 
the justified Christian has Christ living in us and this is enabling us to get rid of junk, to get rid of disobedience, to get rid of sin, to get rid of the, the, the lust and desires and angers and hatreds, all the poison living in our hearts that's come because of the sin nature to make progress in leaving it. Of course, never being easy, of course, never reaching sinlessness in this life, but real progress being possible to make progress in obedience to God. Let's camp on this one for a little bit here because this is a major truth that the Bible shows. The Bible shows that we are unable to live to God, to live unto him on our own. God created Adam and Eve with the ability that they could live in joyful, glad-hearted obedience to him. The fall came and has affected all of us who have descended from Adam and it has messed with us, corrupted us, jacked with us in, in ways that have broken our ability to live unto God and even to want to. But what the text is showing here is that part of the work of the gospel, but part of the work of this salvation that Christ is bringing is not only saving us from the penalty of sin, but also saving us from sin's power right now. Um, there's that hymn that we sing sometimes, uh, Rock of Ages. And there's a line in there that says, um, speaking of Christ uh, and the, from, the, from his wounded side, the blood and water which flowed from his wounded side to be the double cure to save from wrath and make me pure. And what that's referring to is the fact that what Christ is doing, as the Bible says he is saving his people, is that Christ's blood has paid the price of justice so that we can be saved from the wrath of God. But then there's also a way that day by day, by the, uh, the water of the word, by the, the water of Christ's work, that he is continuously purifying our lives that there's both the end way that he has delivered us, but an ongoing way that he's freeing us from the powers of sin. And so just to make this as practical as possible, if you truly are in Christ, you will be changed. That's a guarantee. You will be transformed in some way. That's one of the things that comes up numerous times in scripture. The Bible says it's an identifier of those who are truly in Christ. How can you know those who are truly in Christ versus those who are self-deluded or just pretending or just don't care? Here's an identifier. They will be changed. It is impossible to have Christ living in you and not have some visible change to life that is happening. But God also shows that dramatic change is possible. Dramatic change is possible, transformation. And when we talk about transformation, understand we're not just talking about tweaking or adjusting behavior here. Anybody can do that. You don't need Jesus to, to, to adjust certain behaviors. You don't need the power of God to just, you know, the whole idea of turning over a new leaf and stopping some of my bad habits. You don't need Christ to stop some bad habits. But when the Bible talks about transformation, it's going deeper than just controlling some behavior. When the Bible talks about transformation, 
It goes to all the way to the core of desires, all the way to, to what it is we want, all the lust, all the passions, all of the, the, the angst that's in there, our hungers, our thirst that's in there, and transforming them into something different. The man who ignores Christ can alter some things. He can clean up his talk. He can stop sleeping around. He can quit pornography or, or whatever kinds of actions. But true transformation is deeper than that. True transformation is getting down to the heart of what we love, who we love, what we value, how we see God, how we see the things of this earth. We see this come up several times in scripture. In Jeremiah 13, uh, scripture says, can the Ethiopian change his skin or can the leopard change his spots? So neither can you who are accustomed to doing evil do good. In Romans 8, we're shown that we are actually trapped in a place of disobedience. We are unable to please God. We are unable to bring real change to the way that we think and the way that we act. But listen, it's not that we're victims in this. It's not that we're innocent in the sense that we're trapped. Here's the trap. Apart from Christ, we love serving ourselves. We love our sin. We're committed to ourselves. We're committed to whatever those pet sins that are the temptation, we're committed to keeping them around rather than bowing the knee in submission to him. We love where we are apart from Christ. And so the only way for real transformation to come is by the power of God at work on us. Okay, so just to be frank, if you try to change your life, but you're trying to do it in a way that is not in accordance with what scripture says. If you're trying to use your secular behavioral therapies and, and you think you're gonna bring transformation to your life, you're gonna result in either disappointment or self-delusion. It's just not gonna happen. There really is, you know, and, and contrary to what is you know, popularly believed. I know that whenever you watch the movies and things, they just kind of give the idea, you know, that everybody's always changing. Anybody can just do this when you put your mind to it. Pick yourself up by your bootstraps. That finally, maybe if you just get enough hugs, you know, then the bad man can become a good man. These kinds of things. Popular, you know, contrary to all this nonsense that's out there, the fact of the matter is true human change is actually very rare. It's very rare. In fact, if, if you have some conversations with those who are in, those who are involved in their life is about human behavior and they come from a secularist kind of worldview. So I'm talking psychologists. I'm talking a lot of those who are involved in the corrections facilities and the prison systems. Those who are just like their life, what they think about is human behavior and how do you bring change? There really are a lot of them. It's not all, but a lot of them come to the conclusion that humans cannot change because they'll actually go their entire career using their secular behavioral methods, you know, Freud, using all of their secular ideas and try to bring change. They'll go their entire life and never see true change. They might see little adjustments and little tweaks, but never see anybody transformed into a new kind of creature. And yet one of the ways that God just continuously shows the power of the gospel is that the gospel ministries that set out to do the same kinds of things just regularly, regularly see real life transformation. Sometimes it's just, 
It's just hilarious the way that it works out. So here you'll have a PhD, you know, learned in all of the world's psychology, can quote Freud by verse. And then you got Billy Joe over here, backwoods church, wherever, never been, to, never been to college, but he knows the gospel and he sees real life transformation as he works with folks. And then these people come to the conclusion, it's just not even possible. The gospel brings change. It by necessity brings change to every true believer and it's possible that great change can come. One of the things that the Bible will point out is that many Christians don't change and aren't transformed to the degree that we should be according to the opportunity that we had. But over and over again, God shows his glory by bringing great transformation. In fact, like here's just a reality. In every true church, it will be filled with transformed people, like dramatically transformed people. I know like you, you may walk in on a Sunday morning to this church or another church. You look around and it looks like a bunch of people who are put together and have their lives together. What you don't know is where we all came from. What you don't know is what happens behind closed doors and, and, and some of the amazing things that God has worked. And one of the reasons why you may not know about it is because, you know, we're ashamed of who we used to be. We're ashamed of what we used to do. And we kind of keep that under wraps a lot of times. So let me tell you, Christian, if God has done some pretty dramatic things in your life, you really are glorifying him by opening up more about it. You're helping give hope. You're helping show the power of the gospel by being honest about who you used to be and what God has done in your life and where he is bringing you. And for every one of us, the more transformation that comes, the more we leave that sin and come to obedience, the more we're showing the authenticity of the gospel. And it's an amazing testimony that is there. It never becomes easy, okay? But true transformation is real. God brings it and he's bringing it about in this work he's doing in his people. Now, let me come to kind of the, the last part here, because this section that we're in, is it's the first place that some of the application is given. So let me show you some of the application here. So we just, after all that I said right there, true human change is rare, but God works it regularly in this work he's doing, this work of salvation, sanctification. Here's one of the secrets. Here's one of the Bible's just absolute geniuses that when you read it, you just, you just kind of smile and just be like, well, I mean, God's infinitely wise, but this is, this is just genius. And here we see the Bible showing this. Change how a man thinks and you will change the man. Change the heart, you change the life. Change the inside and you will change the outside. The study of how humans change, it's just fascinating. We're going to talk more about it as we keep going in chapter six. But see this secret, change how you think and you will change how you live. Now that's not an intro for me to talk about the power of positive thinking, burn that trash, okay? But when it comes to changing our thinking according to what the Bible says, according to what scripture teaches, according to the truths that we see there, when we change how we look at the world, when we change how we see, when our thinking begins to match the scriptures, then transformation of life comes. True change happens from the inside out and not the outside in. That's, that's, an, important, that's an important distinction. Romans 12, 2, we reference that verse quite often. It says, 
to the Christian, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It's not changed from the outside in. If a man is an adulterer in his heart, he cannot make himself no longer to be simply by stopping some bad habits. Sure, he can quit. He can control some things that are there, but going all the way to the heart, where that originates, Jesus said that it's out of the heart that all of the wickedness comes and flows out of us. He is unable to transform and bring like true fidelity and contentment and purity down to the depths of his heart and then pick the sin, all of them, pride, arrogance, all of it. It's all the way down to the heart that God brings change. Change how you think, you'll change how you live. With that being said, Now look at verse 11. Look what it says. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. So here's what the text is saying. Here's what Christ has done for you legally. Here are realities that you can't see because they're invisible. You cannot see God in you. You can only see effects. So here are invisible realities Now get your thinking to match this reality. Christian, you are dead to sin. You are alive to God. You are no longer slaves to sin. You've been brought to be attached to Him. We are to bring our thinking to match Scripture. We are not to try to twist the Bible to match what we want it to say. We are to bring our thinking to match the Scripture. You know, the Bible... As you study the word, I'll just throw a number out there. Let's say there are 500 truths that we need to know. And if you go through and we study every single one of them and we come to be familiar with all 500, there's not a single one of them that we know as deeply as we should. But every single one of them are changing the way we think, changing the way we see the world. I mean, just, just if you just take just one of them at the end of... Philippians 3 there, it says, don't set your mind on things of the earth, earthly things. Why? Because in Christ, our citizenship is in heaven. That's what to where thinking is to be on. How do we live for eternity and not just accumulating wealth possessions right here? You take that one truth and and meditate on it deeply, consider it deeply, think on it again and again, and it starts to have its power at work on us. And you begin to consider things like, you know, we're only here for a few decades. Everything that I acquire here, all the money, all the possessions, the houses, the cars, it's all going to rust and rot and burn at the end. It's only what we have in regard of riches towards God that is going to matter in the end. Eternity is like eternity. It's forever. What I do here determines the reward I will have there as that thinking starts to get in your brains. We start to see possessions as less and less valuable. We start to think about the things that will still matter 10,000 years from now. And the point is that one truth, just one truth, if it sinks down deep and really roots itself, we'll look at the whole world differently. And that's just one. There's 499 more that we need. What scripture is showing is this. Bring our thinking to match the truth. So you, Christian, you have died with Christ. You are alive in Christ. You are no longer slaves to sin. We are to bring our thinking to match this, not just for some kind of inspiration, though sure, that can be a part of it. 
but it is to understand when we look at sin to view it rightly, to hate it like God hates it, to love the things that God loves, to bring what's happening inside to match this. So we are to think of ourselves in this way. In verse 10, we're told Jesus lives to God and we're told for us, you live to him. And this is to dominate every part of our thinking. There is to be a way that these truths become so common in our thoughts. They become so regular that they dominate that every decision that we make, all the big decisions like where am I going to work? Where am I going to live? What kind of house I'm going to buy? Who to marry? All the heavy stuff. It will all be weighed not against, you know, what does my flesh want? What is convenient? What's going to result in the most stuff here? But weighed against how do I glorify God? How do I live unto him? So the big decisions, and then the Bible goes on to say, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God, that even the little stuff in the day-to-day, that even eating breakfast is ultimately about living to God. It's about glorifying Him in everything that we do. This kind of thinking is to get in our brains and dominate how we look at everything, everything that we see. This is our Father's world. This cosmos belongs to Him. It's all from Him. It exists through Him. It's all to Him. In the end, everything is gonna bow the knee and give Him glory in some way. Your job is meant to glorify God. Your family is meant to glorify God. Your time is meant to glorify God. This is to get in our thinking so that we see everything in terms of it's all unto him. Live unto him. And so to try to get practical, think for just a second, and I'm almost done here. Think for just a second of a few of those sins that most plague you. I've got some of mine in my mind. In regard to those We have to get it into our thinking, that's who I used to be. Before I turned to Christ, that's part of the old me. I've been made a new creature. That's not appropriate to who I now am in Christ. There's a new way of living, a new way of walking that we are called to. And then a word to you, if you're here and you've been refusing Christ, if you've been refusing to to bow the knee by turning your life or to place your full trust in him, I want want to ask you to consider for a second. Scripture says, Romans 8, if you want to look it up for yourself, that if we refuse to turn to Christ, if we scoff at Christians when they use this language of you must be born again or these kinds of things, if you scoff at that, you need to understand this. God says that if you refuse him, then your heart is hostile to him. And I know that you may not think of yourself like that. I didn't think of myself like that before I turned to Christ, but consider it just by its definition. The living God speaks from heaven and says, you're not okay. You must have forgiveness of sins and it only comes if you will recognize that need. Jesus says you must be saved and you look to him trust in him, cry out to him. And then God says that he will forgive you. If you hear that message, the living God says this is true and you just keep telling yourself, no way, I'm a good person. I don't need any of that stuff. You do understand you're being hostile to what he has said. That's hostility to the rule of God. 
That's hostility to the word of God. He says, you need Christ. Trust in him. Bow the knee to him. Cry out to him, acknowledging in prayer that you know you need this forgiveness of sins. And the Bible says, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's pray. Father in heaven, God, I pray that you will enable us to practically go and obey this. Father, you're showing us things about who we are and what you've accomplished, and I pray that we'll live it out. Father, I pray that we will walk in a new way of life. I pray that we will live unto you. Uh, Father, I pray that we will be more mindful of the fact that Christ is in us and that this will produce even greater change. Father, please give us zeal that we'll want to glorify you by every day's obedience and then by the great measurement of progress at the end. Use us, O God. Uh, Father, please bless us as we leave and we ask these things through Christ. Amen. God bless you all. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed and were deeply affected by this week's message titled, Alive in Union with Christ. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter at TrueVineIND, or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.